Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. From Postcard from the Past and Wardle Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is a place where the sky is as blue as a forget-me-not and the sea as flat as the postcard it sits on. As we consider picture postcards and explore what it was that caused us to keep hold of these small, ephemeral rectangles. Each time I welcome two guests and it's their postcards that act as small clues to direct us towards memories, mysteries and stories. I'm Tom Jackson and I'm delighted to say that my guests today are food writer Tim Hayward and academic... Annabella Pollen. Annabella and Tim, welcome to Podcast from the Past. Thank you. Now, Dr Annabella Pollen of the University of Brighton uh, works across a range of areas, including mass photography, popular image culture, and the histories of art, craft, design and dress, especially stuff that goes on at the margins, um, the alternative, the non-canonical. Her particular interests include the Woodcraft Folk, Victorian Valentines, Edwardian Picture Postcards, and the history of the Silhouette Portrait. Um, Plus, her next book will explore social nudism in the 20th century. Mm, Think about that one. (laughs) Now, Annabella joins us today with a TQ9 postmark. What's that? TQ9 is top mess in South Devon. It's not where I was born and it's not where I live, but it's a sort of spiritual home. Right, why is that? Well, it's a strange magnet place for witches and weirdos and hippies and others. Um, when I, was I see where we're my, going now. Yes, quite. When I was in my early 20s, late teens, I moved there from Plymouth, where I was born, which is about 25 miles away. And I moved to this strange small town and you know, hung out with the hippies and grew my hair and wove it into dreadlocks and lived in a caravan and chanted in the woods and um, did all those exciting kind of mystical finding yourself type things, but in wow. a very local South Devon um, place. This was your South Devon, California? It was indeed. <laughs> very good. And it stays with you. This is, this is still part of you. Yeah, it was the place where I met most of my long-standing and enduring friends. So it was the years that I was there were the years um, where conventionally people might go to university, but I didn't go to university in those years. So I formed my sort of first adult friends 
there, my independent adult friends, and they've stayed with me. So it's somewhere I return to and I'm very fond of. It's a very weird and odd place. That's the postcode that I can't wash off me. And TQ, is that Torquay? Yeah, so it's um, it's not big enough or important enough to have its own postcode, but it is at the centre of the meeting of the ley lines for the hippies who believe in that sort of thing. Wow, fantastic. Now, here's a key question. Do you still send postcards? Yes, I sent some yesterday. Actually. Very good. Tell me more. I decided that the best way to get in touch with various people who I'm already in touch with via WhatsApp or Facebook or other forms to kind of rekindle some get-togethers over the summer. I'm just about to go on my annual leave and lots of people I haven't seen since the beginning of the lockdown, you know, the first of the lockdowns, I thought I'd reconnect with them via some postcards. So I had um, great pleasure diving through, delving through some of my old postcards, of which I have many thousands, and um, selecting the right ones for the right people. Now, you will know Tim Hayward from his food writing in the FT. You'll have heard him presenting on the Food Programme or panelling on the Kitchen Cabinet on Radio 4. Um, You may well have read his books, Food DIY, The DIY Cook, Knife, and most recently, a hymn to bread in all its incarnations, from sourdough to the Chorleywood process, and and everything you can do with bread, Um, the superbly titled Loaf Story. Now, uh, and appropriately enough, uh, Tim owns a bakery and restaurant in Cambridge, Fitzbillies. And Tim, you come to us today with uh, a postmark with just numbers on it, I think, 94109. What's that? That's a California zip code. Wow. That's, that's, uh, I lived for a while in San Francisco, um, and it was, in, it was in the, gosh, I suppose the last few years before Silicon Valley really took off. Right. Um, this is I, a while ago. It's a, it's a really long time ago. I'm, I'm really old. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I lived in a just a, a 1930s tower block on top of the Stockton Tunnel, which oh, was a great place to be in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a it was a great place. I just graduated. Um, I, I did photography as a as a, an art student, um, uh, where I basically got really interested in postcards. Became obsessed with John Hind. Oh, um, oh we can talk about his, that. His, his three you tried to replicate his style. Absolutely, I tried to replicate his process oh. uh, with a with a, a sort of three colour split in a camera. Oh, it's, we were building cameras; it was great stuff. Um, but after that, I, I like everybody else, tried to make a living doing it and failed. Uh, started working in restaurants, fell in love with a waitress who happened to be an American, and then uh, followed her <laughs> back to the states. And we ended up in San Francisco, which was was wonderful. I mean, and I think um, just a really sort of formative part of my life. And where did you study? Uh, I was at Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design. Ah, yeah, well, highly regarded, I think. <laughs> well, it, it, it was pretty good then. Although, weirdly, I spent a lot of time at Brighton, where the Mass Observation Archive was, um, oh. because I was also fascinated with their photography collections. Uh, and and uh, that's the kind of early British street stuff, yeah. Ah, interesting. So it must have been quite a, a jump to go from Bournemouth to San Francisco. Oh God, yes! It was it was madly, madly exciting. It was back in the time also when I think everybody thought if you were, if you were English, you were fabulously exotic. Um, and you could, you could... <laughs> Tim, you are fabulously exotic. <laughs> How very lovely of you to say so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm intrigued by this idea that you were trying to replicate the um, 
the processes that John Hind used. I mean, listeners will be familiar with the John Hind sort of highly saturated colour postcards, mm. because what people may not be aware of is that he he was very much a pioneer in in aura, perhaps not a pioneer, a hero in this kind of uh, colour processing. He was an early adopter of British photographic colour processing. He he was phenomenal in that respect. I, I think what was. Well, I was of the last generation who were using sort of a, a lot of film uh, and we were being trained, you know, we spend months in studios lighting sort of cars and food and things in a way that they were absolutely perfect. And all we really wanted was to try and get some kind of spirit back into what we were doing, some kind of, some kind of mess or gunge. People were, ex- people were experimenting with everything from sort of boiling the photographic paper uh, right the way through to sort of, I don't know, pouring domestic bleach into the developer. I mean, all kinds of weird things. And I, I just got really obsessed with him because I, I think I the first postcard I saw, I think was one of his Irish ones. Yes. And I couldn't believe he had all those red-haired children in a line. <laughs> and it looked really weird. And then I sort of, I think before I'd even read the, the, the sort of books on him, I, I'd noticed the thing he does with the small bunch of flowers in the corner. Yes. Um, which bit of dangle. A, 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 bit, a bit of dangle or, or, or sort of bottom left, a bunch of azaleas or something. And, and he, if you look back at that now, his delight in colour is so clear that he'd be looking at you know, whatever it was he was supposed to be photographing, the, the, the bay at Babacom or something, and he, he no, that's not colourful enough. Yes. Damn it, let's stick in a bunch of, of red flowers. Yes. And I, I love that. I love that delight. And at, at one point, I, I actually sort of built the rig with three black and white cameras um, right. shooting through... Uh, sort of two-way glass uh, and, and with different coloured filters over it, producing three negatives at once. Uh, I was using it to try and shoot portraits, which was insanely stupid. Um, <laughs> but that was the process they were doing in Hollywood at the same time as John Hind was doing it. Doing this, it this here. Is the, was this what we used to call the Technicolor three-strip process? Is that, that, what was what, that was what they called Technicolor, yeah. and Hind was kind of inventing it himself, yeah. Amazing. But I was disappointed to discover not that long ago that some of those red jumpers that pop out in the foreground were in fact painted on in post-production. Which is much, much easier to do when you've got three yes. black and white negatives. Right, but, yes, uh, I see what you mean. Because yes. so, you can <laughs> isolate them. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever seen the, the bright red life photographer's jacket? No. It's a, it's, a, it's a very, very weird bit of sort of photographic history. I, I, I had one when I was a student and foolishly gave it to a girlfriend and never got it back. But um, <laughs> Life magazine used to issue like a red combat jacket with the word life across the back in big white letters Um, and what you would do is stick it on the assistant and the assistant would stand in a shot so it would be logoed but also you'd be using them as sort of colour reference and size reference it it was a lovely, so here I am in in South America in the jungle photographing this incredible waterfall, you know Brad put the jacket on, go stand in there and everybody will understand what it is and it'll be branded it's a Very lovely good. idea. <laughs> Scale reference as well. Scale reference as well. But I think John Hines' flowers are like the life life jacket. <laughs> yeah. Well, there aren't that many postcard photographers. I mean, Bella will have to say, something to say about this, I'm sure. But there aren't that many who have a distinctive style. Um, and certainly Hind and his team did yeah. manage to create an aesthetic mm-hmm. that was not, not totally unique, but very easily recognisable. Completely. But also, I love the way it's kind of mixed into our cultural recollection. My my family, my dear old mum still lives down in Christchurch near, near, near Bournemouth. And I go down and visit her sometimes. And weirdly, the English sort of seaside has become more fashionable with the younger generation. 
So I walk along the seafront now and all of the uh, beach huts have been repainted in these yes. kind of Farrow and Ball colours. And you realise <laughs> that Farrow and Ball took the colour of the beach huts from a John Hind photograph of the beach huts. And now people are paying a bloody fortune for the things and painting them the colours of a John Hind photograph. Because that's what the British seaside is. Slightly cooked. Slightly, you know, turn up the saturation in Instagram. I, I, I love it. I love it. You, you turn up the saturation optimistically. I think that's what it is. You, if, you, if you have sunshine, you don't need to do that. No, no, precisely that. <laughs> well, Tim, when did you last send a postcard? When did I last send a postcard? I There's no wrong answer to this. No, it's a weird thing. I think the last time I sent a, the po- a postcard, I sent about 5,000 of them. Um, right. Ah, promotional? <laughs> promotional. Or just I, I was, very I, friendly. <laughs> no, I was, I was running a, a, little, a little sort of independent magazine. Uh, and um, because it was so much about print and going out to people who loved print and loved the, the object, then it seemed like the most obvious way to actually yes. send something out. Um, I, I don't do it now because I'm, I'm immensely committed to, um, to new media. Right. I, I, I really do think that Instagram um, is making, is taking up their place in people's lives of being able to make images and attach messages to them and get them out there. It's different, but it's as strangely valid and new and interesting. That, that's a long-winded excuse for not sending a postcard. But fair, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, eh? Um, look, before we hear about the cards that Tim and Bella have brought along, um, quick one of mine. This is, of course, a, a sort of postcard from the past card like I do on Twitter and in my book. This is an old card from which I've selected um, just a part of the message. So this first one, it's um, a black-and-white multi-view. Um, not sure who's published the card. It's a, it's a picture of... Um, Four views from Belfast with a very, very blobby cat in the middle um, on a um, horseshoe. A horseshoe. And it's good luck from Belfast. The images of the Parliament buildings, the Shaws Bridge, Donegal Quay and Cave Hill, and Donegal Square. And um, oh, the the luck. The luck. Obviously, it's it's a bit of a thing with postcards that they say good luck on the front and and and. Some of the messages already built into the card that way. You know, it's, it's, it's a missive of luck. But I was intrigued by the message on this one. This is from Jew, from August 1961, um, even before your time, Tim. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's sent to Hampshire, Southampton, Hampshire, from, from Belfast. And the, the message just intrigued me because, as I say, it sort of feels about, about luck and good wishes and um, the emotions that you put onto these cards. It says... Um, I'm at home at present, but I'm due back on the 15th for the second retreat. I think probably a religious retreat, I'm not sure. First one went not too bad. Thank you for your help. Please continue to pray. I have a very special intention, Dash. A friend is involved in a lawsuit for several thousand pounds. And the case comes up on Monday next. Hope you have had a good rest and that your health is keeping uh, better. Health is keeping better. God bless you. And then some abbreviation, uh, some uh, initials for the name. So I was just intrigued by the fact that not only did this person want um, prayers for health and happiness, there's a very specific request. They've got a friend who's going to court for several thousand pounds and they want goodwill 
to make that uh, successful. So there you go. You sure they don't want a modest investment? This sounds like one of those fantastic Nigerian <laughs> bank scams, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, there's the, certainly the preamble to it. <laughs> they, they, did, they forgot to do the hit at the end. Well, I should remind those of you who are listening that images of these cards, including the blobby cat, um, are all on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk. You can see that we're not making it up. Now... You've both been kind enough to dig out for this podcast some postcards of your own. Bella, let's start with you. Um, what's the first card you've got for us? This is something quite old, I think. Yes, actually, I don't know the date of it. I imagine it is from what people call the golden age of postcards. The golden so, age. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I know from a bit of nerdy historical knowledge that the divided back of postcards came in in 1904. So it's after 1904, but I'm assuming before the First World War. And it's a, it's a black and white image on the front of Madeira Road in Brighton, which is now a very busy thoroughfare. It's the place where if there's kind of, you know, vintage car runs down to Brighton from London, that's where all the cars will assemble. It's now a really busy location with volleyball courts and all sorts of activities going on, shops and clubs and so on. But in this postcard, um, so maybe 1905, it's got um, a couple of horse-drawn carriages. It's got the visible rails of the Volks railway, the, the old Victorian sort of um, leisure railway that runs along the, the seafront. And it's got the terrace and the arches that are part of that famous part of the sort of east side of Brighton seafront. The postcard itself is not particularly interesting for its image, though. It's all about what's on the back. Well, I'll stick with the image for a minute, though, just because I think it's interesting. Sure. It's um, this this sort of parade, it says here, Soper's Bazaar. Bizarre. These are sort of iron orientalist arches, aren't they? Going on for half a mile or so, I think. Yeah, they're currently under threat, actually, and mostly they're covered over because the, um, this is a kind of bit of local controversy. They're going to cost so much money to repair. They've fallen into such a state of terrible disrepair that... Um, the council locally doesn't have enough money to repair them. So this is actually rather a sort of mournful image of when mm. they were at their peak and at their most beautiful. It's a huge amount of painted, decorative, wrought iron that goes on for a really long way, pretty much from the Palace Pier out to the beginnings of what's now the marina and Black Rock. So, yeah, they're, they're a sort of beautiful and iconic part of Brighton, and here they're probably seen... At their best. And what what were they then at the beginning of the twentieth century? What, what what happened in those arches under those arches? Well, interestingly, there's not really anything under them. Um, right. There is now that you know some of them have um, are turned into shops, and they're um, in fact some of them are really interesting little art galleries and so on. But the main Perfect. part was just a covered walkway, right. which seems incredibly luxurious. I think <laughs> to just have that covered walkway, but perhaps rather practical in the high winds and the bad weather of the British. Um, seaside so it was just somewhere to kind of promenade that wasn't as exposed as walking on the top but it's a nice bit of Brighton that actually um, you know, in all kinds of ways just because Brighton itself is such a busy town and the Palace Pier is such a kind of jangling noisy place which is wonderful but as you kind of as you stroll away or, or if you've got the you catch the moment jump on the little Volks Railway which seems to be running these days you, it gets quieter and quieter 
Yeah, you can have a, a moment where you can sort of feel a, a moment of escape if you look in the right direction at the right time of day. But yeah, Brighton's <laughs> not about getting away from it all. It's about no, throwing yourself into the thick of things, I think. So <laughs> you'll have those moments quite briefly, I think, on Madeira Drive in the yeah. 21st century. Well, let's flip the card over, though. In fact, the, the message is a vestige of the, of the pre-divided back days. The message starts on the front, I think. It does. And on the front, it is written in rather beautiful handwriting, which is kind of typical of these Edwardian cards. Often... And legible, thank God. Yes, yes. They're often misspelled, but they're beautifully lettered. So it says, were any of your relations staying at, and then pregnant pause while you turn the card over, Albion House, Brighton, no question mark. But then the key part and the main body of the message is the next part of the of the writing and it says I have got some news for you but as I don't want anybody else to read it I will try and put it under the stamp <laughs> yours truly Burton and then mm. the stamp <laughs> the area of the stamp the stamp is gone but frustratingly so is part of the message and this is the thing that's always intrigued me about this particular postcard it's not actually one that I own it's one from Brighton Museum's collection, oh, okay. but I, I had a wonderful job a while ago, well, quite some time ago now, maybe 15 years ago, where I had um, the delightful task of looking through Brighton Museum's collections, what they call their reserve collections, so the stuff that's not on display, in search of anything that was to do with love, um, courtship, romance, sex. Oh, I basically had this amazing job where I could look through those collections with a one-track mind. <laughs> so I put on these kind of heart-shaped spectacles and went through all sorts of their collections. And what I wanted from the postcard was, I thought, oh, there'll be saucy postcards from people going to Brighton for a dirty weekend. Yes. That will be a great place to go and look for evidence of love and sex. Most of them had nothing but pictures of places because they'd been collected by the local study centre. Right, so they were yes, rather yes. dull sort mm. of topographical cards until you turned them over. Yes. Um, and then there, were, there was plenty of evidence of people using Brighton as a place for flirtation and romance and getaway and so on. Um, but because I had that one-track mind and because I was looking for love and sex everywhere... I found it in all the concealed Here she messages. comes again, they said, as you entered the museum. <laughs> oh, yes. for God's sake. Give so, that woman uh, yes. a glass of water. <laughs> Cold shower, please. So, yes, I went looking for suggestive messages and often I saw them when there weren't any. So my expectation was that this message under the stamp was something so hot and rude that it had to be, you know, sealed up. And, Sounds like um, it and sort of closed away. You can actually see two of the words from whatever this tiny bit Under the stamp? Message, yeah. So, so what can you see? I can't see anything on my copy, but... Well, you have to go right in there. You see, this is what you have to do if you're a dedicated <laughs> I've got it blown up on my screen now. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it says, get off. Those are oh two words God. that may be separated by some other words. Yes, yes. I don't know whether the person who took this stamp off see, uh, steamed it off so they were able to get to the message, or whether they scraped it off and lost half of the message Made a on the, mess of it, didn't the they? paper. Whatever, yeah. Or was it a curator or an archivist later <laughs> going in? So not um, only do you not know the date of the card because of that, you've, you've missed the whole nub of the message. The mystery yeah, but remains. I think it makes it all the more exciting to not definitely, know definitely. so many cards were used for really functional purposes. And I like that banal element of the everyday 
communication, people saying, please, can you return my scissors or I'll meet you at the clock tower at 7 p.m. Um, but the idea that there's something really kind of dangerous and um, important that must be concealed makes me think about how the postcard in its you know, early days was this thing that was seen to be rather rude and rather risky. Yes. It was sending messages for all to see. You know, the postman might be able to read it. Your landlord. Fla- possibly flagrant. I love it. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's such a bad strategy to try and counter that by putting the message yeah. under a <laughs> half an inch square that is oh. going to get ruined by the gum on the stamp anyway. It's just a bad plan. They should have thought this through. Oh, but it's so lovely. Doesn't your heart go out to people trying to do that stuff? That combination of gentility and fear. And I don't know. It's just something beautiful about it, really. Yeah. No, it it, it, it gives it an extra resonance for sure, doesn't it? The, doesn't it the, just? The mystery of the who, who's on the front, where are they heading? And, of course, the, the line of the railway and the, and the terrace gives you such a kind of um, it's almost a, a surreal move towards the, uh, the horizon with sort of... Um, exaggerated perspective uh, going nowhere and then the message that's disappeared it's um the whole thing is a kind of visual poem i think absolutely you can't and do that so on instagram those... for sure <laughs> yeah well those kind of secret messages were often really poor strategies but that's the delight of them and certainly as a historian they're the ones that you pour over longer to try yes. and crack the code so um <laughs> they didn't conceal they you know they were revelatory in their own way yeah, well, I hope MS Pound in Highbury New Park, N, North London, I suppose, um, was pleased to receive that. And they could understand. Hopefully they did get the message. They understood. And they may have sent a return postcard saying, what the hell were you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get off what? The bus, the tram? <laughs> you, you know we've had a phone fitted. You could call us. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Oh, well, thank you for that one. Now, Tim, what's the first card that's fallen on your doormat? Oh, this is an absolute belter. Uh, this, is a, <laughs> this is a card from a restaurant in Paris called the Tour d'Argent. And if you're a modern foodie, you probably wouldn't go there because it's a, it's a terrible tourist trap now. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a picture of a, of a bloke uh, carving a duck. Um, and to one side, there's a, a, a sort of torture device, which is a duck press. Um, <laughs> duck and press. I first read about this place when I was a, a kid. I, I suppose I must have been a young teen. Uh, and I wasn't sort of interested in food at the time, but I read. I suppose it was probably in Julia Child or somewhere like that. I'd, something I'd picked up and I was just re- leafing through. It was a story about a restaurant in Paris where they would effectively take a, a challenge duck, which is a particularly good breed of duck, which has been killed by smothering rather than the usual way of bleeding it out. So it's still got a little bit of its blood in it. And then the duck would be partially roasted and then the the breast would be cut off uh, very very rare and the rest of the duck cocks would be put to a silver duck press and the top is screwed down and all of the juice comes out and it's used to make a reduced sauce this looks like a little sort of um cider press or something but but, but it's, it's very exactly delicate and expensive yeah. looking you can actually do it with a with a cider press although it it's actually not delicate at all these things weigh you know Half hundred weight, and, and wow. they're, they're, they're astonishing bits of kit. And it takes <laughs> a, you know a big strong weighter to turn the top, and there's this crunching noise, and the juice comes out. And I, anyway, I, I thought to myself, you know, one day I'm going to go to this place, and I never got the chance. Um, and then I started writing about food, um, and I was writing for the Guardian uh, and uh, making some videos for them. 
And they said, is there anything you particularly like to do? And I said, yeah, I'd really like to go to the Pets of Paris, the Tour d'Argent. <laughs> um, they said, OK, yeah, no problem. We can and you'd do that. never been at that stage? I'd never been, no. Uh, that, that when we had budget. So they, they, <laughs> they, they, they sent me over with, um, with a wonderful uh, director, uh, camera woman, a Canadian uh, girl who was just, just absolutely... And we, we got out there and, and it turned out to be the, the one day of the week they were closed... Because uh, oh. I'd failed to do my research. <laughs> so I, I, I did the whole sort of, this is, you know, by phone in the morning, and I speak very, very little French at all. Uh, and I, this whole sort of, you know, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Oh. Um, and they did. And, and they, when they, things they, are closed in Paris, they're closed. Yeah, well, they opened the place up for me. You're this joking. Amaz- no, no kidding. It was amazing. They, they, they called up uh, the, you know, one of the waiters who did it, and the proprietor was there, uh, and they said, you know, if you're video, it's a video for an English newspaper, you know, we're, we're interested. Um, and I, they did it with me there alone in the room. And it got dark outside. And the, the hotel, the, the restaurant is at the top of a, a, an apartment building. It looks out over uh, Notre Dame. Wonderful. And I'm sitting there waiting for this duck to be crushed at my table side. And the lights have gone down outside. The lights come on at Notre Dame, looking down onto oh. it. And it's the single most gloriously, beautifully romantic <laughs> moment I've ever experienced. And I'm... <laughs> By myself, apart from this, you know, extremely beautiful director. Who's, I'm, she's married. I'm married. There's damn all you can do about it. And, and I, I just, I don't know. It, it was such a such a strange, overpoweringly weird feeling. <laughs> anyway, sorry, but it all gets very strange. As it happens later on, I, when I, I, I tried to replicate it at home, and I couldn't build a device like it. So I ended up doing it by by putting the duck in a in a, a tin tray and driving my car over it. <laughs> Um, which which had a had a similar effect. Anyway, the the the, the, the reason you behind can't do that in the restaurant. You can't do that in the restaurant. The reason behind all this nonsense is is that they the the ducks were so valuable that they had a little silver tag attached to their ankles when they came from the farm wow. in Challenge. And at the end of the meal, you were presented with a little silver tag. And I'd read this in the original story. I thought, this is great. I'm going to get my yeah. silver tag. That's and provenance, end, isn't it? Yeah. And at the end of the meal, they gave me a bloody postcard. And I said, you know, où est le tag d'argent, mate? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Oh no, no, no! Un carte postale these days." And, okay. and I was I'd, so, I, but I got my number at the, the top. You and can, oh, you can see the number at the you top. Can see the it, number of my duck. The yeah. number of the duck the is the number of your duck. <laughs> so I, I, I then <laughs> I then took the number and had it embossed on uh, a set of dog tags along with the date that I'd done it. And, and I still occasionally wear them for luck if I'm doing something <laughs> that needs luck. Um, so I, I do have my my, my silver tag finally. From the Tour d'Argent, um, it was the, the, actually it was it was lovely. It was, it was way too rich. Now there are restaurants in in London that have started bringing back the uh, the, the the crushed duck, uh, and it's it, it is a, a marvelous bit of restaurant history. But it seems weird that I should have end up sort of doing that, this kind of stuff for a living, and yet I somehow spotted it as a kid. Yeah, it's it's very peculiar. I often wonder about how to what extent the seeds of what we end up doing as an adult are really very well established as children. You think there might be a hint of them, but often it's, mm. it's actually written in your childhood. Yes, it is. And, and it's a strange thing. I think, I, think I, I slid into photography sort of remarkably easily. Um, sort of academically, I'd been moving towards English, uh, but I never, never had any aspirations to be a writer. I went into photography, and there's something about being in dark rooms and fiddling around with chemicals... Uh, and working with your hands that makes a lot of photographers become cooks. 
Ah, photographers okay. and filmmakers particularly uh, of the old school very often went on to become cooks or write cookbooks. Yes. Um, Bringing so it's, the ingredients it's, together. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So I, I, it's kind of all, it's all become very, very, very circular, very spiral in a way I never would have imagined it to happen. But you look at this postcard you received. Mm. You'd think it was from, from 1904. Well, the restaurant's been there since you know since that time, and they didn't change the design at all. This is a this is a modern uh, you know four color print of a, of what originally would have been a, a an engraving sort of lithograph, I imagine. Um, it's a it's a it's a lovely lovely thing, sort of self self aged. Well, I, I, I'm really happy that you you both managed to get your duck crushed, but also <laughs> that they did give you this certificate, this 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 proof that it happened. I think mm-hmm. it it certainly enhanced enhances the experience and the memory and adds another layer to it. I suppose. Mm, yes, yes. Very good, very good. Well, um, another quick card from me. This is. Um, well, they're not numbered on your sheet, but this is a card which is I, I only discovered it in a box the other day. And I hadn't really not noticed it before. It's a scenic view cocktail coaster cut on dotted line. So yes. it's the normal postcard uh, ratio, um, sort of oblong. But the idea is you can cut across about a quarter of the way down. Um, and there's some pictures of a, a cocktail with sort of bits flying off it and a, and a orangey... Um, pint glass but it reveals then a square coaster well it's a postcard with a bit cut off um, and the image on that is some oast houses um, and that was your scenic view cocktail coaster i hadn't seen them before so i don't know if they lasted very long this, this one was printed by cg williams of maidstone have you, have you seen these annabella i haven't seen these at all i haven't no but i'm a big fan of the sort of novelty postcard that you know <laughs> with a flap or a fold or a bit yes. you cut off or a bit that you shake or lift or whatever and um i haven't seen that it strikes me as such a sort of minimal intervention to turn it into a coaster. <laughs> like to just not worth doing. That, that top third off. Yeah, why would you need a perfectly square <laughs> coaster rather than a rectangular coaster? And it's not um, even absorbent like a coaster. Quite, it's just a shiny postcard. Yeah. <laughs> right, like I have it, got though. a number of postcards that are beer beer coasters. They're called beer, beer mats. They were printed for a while, promotional ones. In fact, I think that... that is it Harvey's in Lewis? Yeah still yeah. do them but um unless these were really popular but everyone used them and that's why they're not out there anymore that, that is a possibility that, <laughs> that, that, that in 1967 may 1967 this was um anyway, i mean it's the front that's interesting really but i'll give i'll give you the message um well here we are again this is uh, sent to bermondsey from uh sheerness in kent well here we are again I hope the weather brightens up before the week is out. Very common message. Or rather, that the wind will drop. So it's a bit windy and it would be. Um, it was a lovely thought this morning that we didn't have to go to work. Uh, cheerio for now. Love, Mavis. And, and I actually think that's a really nice holiday message. It was a lovely thought that we didn't have to go to work because that is a magical moment when you're on holiday. <laughs> That's all you need, really. Well, yeah, the change is as good as the rest. It is a break. The fact that you're in Sheerness or wherever they actually were when they wrote it rather than sent it, but it's just enough that they're, um, yeah, they're not going. I don't know. Who knows what Mavis did for a living? But thank God she got a break for, you know, a few days. And also she was lucky because it was Dutch week in in the Medway in June 1967 because the the Frank says that. um, I don't know what Dutch week included. A picture of a sort of 
Dutch schooner um, on the postmark. So maybe it was rather a dramatic thing to go and see. I don't know. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. And my guests today are Tim Hayward and Bella Pollen. Now, here's a surprise. We've received a postcard. Uh, and this postcard is uh, the Friars of Ailes, Aylesford from the Medway, uh, not far from the last one. Um, and it was posted in Maidstone. And the message says, we think the mystery voice this week is Tommy Steele. Well, Mrs. Stevenson, I'm afraid that's the wrong answer. Uh, I'll carry on with the postcard stories. Now, Tim, <laughs> what's the second postcard you've got for us? Oh, isn't this fantastic? This is a, a, a slightly aerial view. Well, they didn't have drones then, so it must be upper building, but I'm not quite sure which building it is, um, of Bournemouth Town Square, uh, which isn't square, it's, it's round. Um, and I, I absolutely love this. Uh, it's a little bit before my time. Um, Bobby's, the uh, department store there, had turned to Debenhams by the time I was, uh, I was growing up there. Um, As every department store had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to the right, just in the bottom corner of frame, is the building that was later to become the mass- massively fashionable Jean Genie, uh, where you could go and buy jeans in many sizes and be served by a callow youth that was me. Uh, I think that was my that was my very very first job, and then my second job was over on the left hand side of the frame. You can see a, a sort of white building there with a, some script on the front in red, just to the left of Bobby's, and that's Fortes. Oh. Um, the as Forte, in Fortes, the as in restaurant Sir Charles Forte, the restaurant right. chain, etc. Uh, Sir Charles came over uh, after the war with his family. They came from a peculiar part of Italy. Um, just around the base of Monte Cassino, the uh, the, right. the, the monastery that was there. Uh, and it had been pretty poor between the wars when the family started coming over and sort of emigrating over here. But after World War II, it became incredibly poor. Uh, I mean, you know, people living in holes in the ground and 
eating whatever they could get their hands on. It was really, really grim. So there was yes. a, there was I think a, there Price was, for Italy was pretty tough, wasn't it? It was really tough. And so there was a great deal of immigration over here. Uh, and they created a great deal of the catering industry that was, that was exciting. And I got my first restaurant job there. I was a, uh, what's called a KP, a kitchen porter stroke dishwasher. I was 15 years old, I think. Oh, I was gosh. about six foot tall, but <laughs> I weighed about eight and a half stone, wringing wet. Uh, I had very, very long hair that covered my bilaterally prominent ears, which were later, which were later pinned back by the National Health Service. You are painting By the time I was about here. 23, yeah. <laughs> but I was, I, was a, I was a long, skinny streak of piss. Um, and I worked in the basement with everybody who was there was Italian. Really? And they were real old school, proper agricultural Italians. Um, and they brought the family, brought them over from their own, from their own district. Um, and these guys were, they were hard as hell. I mean, they were really tough. Some of them were going up into their sort of 60s and 70s, and they'd been in restaurant work all their lives. Right. Uh, some of them were quite young. Um, but they were, they were just tougher than anything I'd ever encountered. <laughs> Back back then, catering was 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 not full of fashionable young people with piercings, but many right. guys had been cashiered from the catering corps for poor personal hygiene and bullying, <laughs> uh, or Italians. And um, I remember the first couple of days I was there, I, I, I couldn't speak to anybody. You know, I I didn't know what to do. I was nervous. I kept dropping things, smashing stuff. And then this it start, they started to get to to know me, and they were incredibly lovely. And we spoke, we could speak very very little, but there were things like. There was there was orange juice in giant cartons, and we would drink it out of the one pint mugs, the old beer <laughs> mugs. I was drinking pints of orange juice. <laughs> they had this thing called the cow, which was a a, a, a cube about uh, about sort of three quarters of a meter, seventy five centimeters in, in dimensions. It was a fridge, and you open the front door and you put a box with a sack of milk inside it. There was a sort of nozzle that came out the bottom, which is a piece oh, of rubber with a yes. tap on it. And we used to use that as a milk dispenser. But it meant that I was drinking pints and pints of milk. <laughs> and then on the top floor, there was a carvery. And they used to have a cart. They used to push around every day with the roast beef on it. And I remember the first night I was there when I was doing washing up for one of the evening services. And there was a ringing noise. And the cart came down in the lift from the top floor. And the door opened. And, and the leader of the Italians handed me a stick of French bread, which is sort of what we used to call a French stick, impossibly yes. glamorous. Basically, yes. it's just a long, flat, rolled roll. But he handed me to, I couldn't work out what was going on. <laughs> and the doors opened on the lift, and they pulled out the cart with the, the remains, the smashed-up remains of the beef roast on it. And it was a lot of meat on it. And the knives came out, and they started carving it off. And there was kind of, like, they were passing me bits of meat on the knife. <laughs> And showing me how to tear the bread off and dip it into the jelly in the bottom of the bottom oh. of the, the, the tray, and I was just, I just, I was so brought into their into their group, and there was still there was still no language, and they looked to this what this one guy, this older guy who was sort of in charge of them all, of permission for everything they did. I remember them looking at him as if saying, you know, "Is it okay to dip our bread in there?" And at one point, he's kind of moved one leg. And let rip this gigantic fart. Oh. <laughs> and then, a, and then a, a smile spread across his face. And it was like, you know, that's it. Permission to eat. I, I just, well, you've got to have a just, system. I don't know. It was, so, it was so romantic. It was like, you know, like Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia being invited to eat by the Bedouin. I, 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 and I, I, I loved it. I, I, Someone but, else's world. 
I know. And I, and I left at the end of the first summer I worked there, and honest to God, I, I looked like Thor. Oh. I was I was I I I I'd eaten so much this is this was you know back in the got the the 80s I mean you know there wasn't much <laughs> we weren't eating great stuff I'd eaten more meat more bread more orange juice more milk than any other human being you know yeah. within miles and I had really I mean I got muscular and large yes. um and it was I, I, it was great the the weird corollary of this story and this is truly truly spooky is years later, again working for The Guardian, I was sent to Italy to, uh, to do a story on a, 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 a sort of semi-ritual pig killing right. um, in this area near Monte Cassino. Um, and I, was there, I stayed for three days with this family. We, we, we did the pig in and stripped it down to all its constituent parts uh, and made it into salamis and hams and pates and things like that. And the crew were with me filming all the time. And I got to know this little bunch of guys that were there. There was one old guy, little tiny, thwart little, little cobbled of a man. And he had tiny little stumpy fingers, but on really, really strong, spatulate <laughs> hands. And the last night I was there, we were all sitting there quaffing the red wine. And the translator said, this guy has something he wants to tell you. And I said, oh, OK, what's that? Will you translate? And uh, they spoke back and forth. He says he knows you. You're joking. Did you, did you work in Fortes in Bournemouth? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, I'm literally, I'm halfway up the mountain in Casino, looking up at the ruins of the monastery on top. The sun's going down behind the olive fields. You can't escape your past, Tim. You can't escape your past. <laughs> and he, you know, he was Vittorio with his little funny, spuddy fingers. He remembered me. So how did he know you? He was he there? He recognised me. He recognised me. He'd been watching me all week as we'd been filming. And he, he couldn't quite put his finger on it, he said. But, you know, he said, I knew you from somewhere. I knew you. you're bigger now. <laughs> yeah, oh, shit. <laughs> it's your ears. They're different. <laughs> yes, the ears have changed. <laughs> oh. I, I don't know. I, I, I think that was the first, the first time I went into a kitchen and I got that it was more about the, uh, the camaraderie and the fire and yes. knives yes. than it was about the, the food. And I think I. It's funny today. Um, partly we're realising how very toxic that also becomes. Yes, of course. I mean that that degree of of farting, meat eating masculinity, was wonderful to me. I was a, like I was a, I was a fey little grammar school boy, you know, of of questionable sexuality, you know, and, and I'm thrown into something that sort of stupidly macho. Um, I I kind of I kind of relished it. It was it yes. was exciting. Um, but you can see now how, how the same thing can go can go septic yes. very, very, very fast. And yes. it has in, in, in many cases. And that's the part of a job I, I, I don't love and, I, and, I, and I'm not proud of. But, but there was something there that just sort of just I was injected along with the, the meat juice and the vitamin C and the milk. Uh, that, that, you know, that, that just gave me that thing of, yeah, I love this. When these people are good, these are wonderful people. Very interesting. Very interesting. So all kinds of scrapes and memories and, and, and reflections. <laughs> Gosh, all from, from the most gentle looking picture of some yellow buses going round a roundabout in Bournemouth. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Thank you for that, Tim. Now, Annabella, what's the last card you've got for us today? This, um, well, I, I'll say no more. I know what it is, but to t- tell us about this. Well, you set me a terrible challenge because I think about postcards and I think about popular images and I think about snapshots in my, you know, my daily life, my professional life as part of my job all the time. But I also have 
thousands and thousands and thousands of postcards at home. So to set me that challenge of choosing, you know, a postcard, one postcard or two postcards was really, really difficult. And so um, I decided to choose a postcard about postcards because that seemed to be the obvious thing to do. And uh, the postcard that I've selected is one that is uh, produced by Bamforth and Co from Yorkshire, who are famous uh, postcard producer. Of course. And it's a dirty postcard, but it says on the front, this should suit you, it's a dirty postcard, and there's no saucy image of a buxom woman <laughs> bending over or a vicar and a, you know, a busty matron. <laughs> there's, in fact, just a filthy smear on the front of yeah. the postcard. It's so literally smutty. It's, it's smudgy, isn't it? It is, it is. And the, then when you turn it over, um, it's also rather dirty on the back, which I like, because this is a postcard that I think dates from the mid-60s. On this particular example, you can't read the postcard. It's not uh, the postcode, post-stamp, rather. It's not legible, but it's um, the stamp is, I think, from the late 60s, and I've seen other examples of this from the mid-60s. This is a, a rather filthy postcard. It's gone a bit yellow over time, and it may have been passed around by people with grubby mitts, and some uh -huh. of those grubby fingerprints might be my own. <laughs> Um, because this card for a very long time um, was on the windowsill and as a consequence of that, the message on the back, it was inscribed, but the message has been, has faded out by the sun. So it has a has curious it connection. Gone? I can see by tilting it to the light that it was inscribed, but I can't read what the message was. So it has a strange connection to my earlier one, even though it's of a very different subject and a completely different time in that the sort of the, the message is gone. But as I recall, it said nothing particularly interesting. It said something like, here's one for your collection. So, in fact, even the uh, message was about postcards, which yes, is a very, yes. that's a very common thing, isn't it? To acknowledge post, the postcard itself on the back or the, the act of postcard collecting on the back. So the yes. message was nothing interesting. But the, the grubbiness of this card from the 19... <laughs> 60s and the sort of the journey it's taken and the the messiness on the back as well as on the front it speaks of my wider interest in postcards but also as I mentioned earlier my kind of non-professional life which is how my partner makes his living which is you know clearing people's houses and um, you know taking stuff out of garages and sheds and taking some of it to the dump and some of it to car boot sales and some of it to auction houses and, and quite a lot of it to me I have to say um, because I always <laughs> get, get first, first dibs. dibs. I do, yeah. <laughs> so it's a dirty world, the world of house clearances. It's a rather sort of murky world. Um, well, it's, a, it's a slightly sad world as well, isn't it, often? I mean, well, it is a very sad world and uh, my very first sort of interests, academic interests, the very first bits of publishing I did were about found photographs because yes. the way that people's personal photographs end up in car boot sales, I'm not alone in feeling this, is something that is a really, um, it seems to be an act of kind of social discontinuity. You know, these things that were once the things that people would rescue from a fire, the yes. most precious yes. family stories of loved ones and the, you know, the birth of children and these major sort of personal moments, when you see them selling for 10p in a pile on the floor in a, you know, in a junk shop or whatever, I started rescuing those and <laughs> trying to restore the stories of the, you know, the lost people to them. Um, my very first bit of sort of major research on this, I found a, a set of photo albums from 
when I say found, they were bought from a car boot sale. In fact, my partner bought them with a view to selling them. And then I said, no, I want to keep them. This is a really common conversation. Yes, <laughs> he says, course. oh, look what I've bought. These will make some money. I say, no, hang on a minute. I'd like to have those. And uh, it was a set of photo albums of um, then somebody whose name I didn't know at all, just the initials on the cover of the album. And it was somebody who'd taken five albums between about, I think, 1919 and um, the late 1930s. And it was a sort of album of a life. And they'd ended up in a car boot sale. And I spent a long time finding out who the photographer was, who his family were. I traced him through births, deaths and marriages registers. I traced this life story for him. Um, which was actually, interestingly, completely different from the life story that his albums told, oh, really? which seemed to be this kind of happy courtship, the birth yes. of meeting a partner, getting married, having children, children growing up. Um, in fact, he was um, he was a divorcee and the first yes. wife didn't appear. This was his kind of new life being documented. Well, you don't take photographs of rows and storming out the door, do you? No, indeed. And, you know, if you have cheated on your wife and abandoned your child and gone off with your secretary, you have to construct a rather different visual narrative in order to justify your behaviour. So, um, yeah, that sort of restoring kind of lost narratives and rescuing forgotten things is definitely a kind of emotional investment, although I realise it's very romantic and sometimes the stories are are not very happy stories. But also, it's... In that case... It's almost a form of madness, though, because for yeah. every every image you find that you think you can you can restore some sort of narrative and meaning to, there are literally millions that you can you you can't make order out of all this chaos. It's not possible. So you're just taking yeah. a very very thin sliver, which may well be valuable to do, but it's kind of around you on all sides is the kind of chaos screaming at you. Yeah, and what I learned through doing that process and being involved in the sort of fringes of those secondhand worlds for decades now is that often people have got rid of things because they want to get rid of them. <laughs> so this idea that you might restore this lost yes. thing to somebody who needs it, you know, I found in that case of that album, I got in contact with the family, you know, the, the one of the children de- uh, depicted as a baby in this photograph album. I, I located him and he's in his 80s and, you know... That family had broken up for a good reason and they didn't want to have this story returned to them. It was a story they wanted to forget. And I think many So that artists, is your romantic notion being overlaid, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, exactly. So this idea of the found object and this idea that you can spin this kind of story around it, often, you know, in the house clearance world, um, they know exactly where this material has come from. It's kind of one or two steps removed from the the house to the car boot sale table but people buy it and go oh this amazing lost object how can we possibly find who it belonged to but actually you can find out you know fairly promptly this is the collector's instinct isn't it that you're somehow saving things for for, for, indeed that idea of rescuing so yeah yeah. i don't and and for slightly unspecified reasons but you are you're somehow saving making sense restoring meaning but i think you just well when your garage is full you have to kind of (laughs) Yeah, and the garage is full and the loft is full and we're reproducing, you know, the issues of the people who are having to get their houses cleared. (laughs) We're just accumulating their stuff in in our house. Yeah, and it's not even your stuff now. Well, it is your stuff, but it's it's one one removed emotionally. Well, yeah, and that's the interesting thing as well, is that I could be doing this work on my own family history, but actually I'm not particularly... I don't particularly want to. There's some kind of... 
I find it more interesting to research the lives of strangers and call myself yes. a historian with a capital H. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you um, mean. It's, it's a strange definition, isn't it? And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm the same. I tell you what, I, uh, this is, I have an absolute... I wake up in the night sweating at the, at the fear that I will muddle genuine family artefacts of which there are some, you know, I mean, by which I mean pictures and photographs and postcards, with the collection or the hoard of meaningless cards that I have, not meaningless, but, but that have no meaning to me or my family. The idea that you would lose your real family stuff into the, the well of this um, other people's stuff, I, it, it, it makes me sweat. It's a horrible thought. That's so interesting, and it's, I think it sort of speaks of this idea that there is a clear water between them, those other people, those mystery strangers from the past, and you now, but increasingly there isn't. So I had a similar thing, this sort of middle-of-the-night sweat. One time I had a nightmare where I was at a car boot sale, you know, something I do every weekend. I was looking through stuff on a stall, and I was saying, as many people do when they root through car boot sale, stuff oh I used to have one of those I used to have one of those and then I realized with you know horror film type chills that every single thing on that stool oh. was mine and I had died and this was all my stuff being cleared and it was this terrible existential moment that I woke up from in a great panting sweat yes, because I thought yes. you know that's how close we all are to yes. these things that are on the stools you know they're not just things that other people used to own they're, they're parts of us and I suppose that emotional investment maybe makes you treat other people's stuff with a bit more sensitivity or maybe yes. it's just you know a way to deal with that existential fear <laughs> yes. to keep accumulating stuff and rescuing it and yeah. researching God. it i don't know i, I, I don't think we better ask too many more questions yeah yeah, yeah no well i'm, I'm glad you share these uh, um, unfortunate collectors psychoses it's um, yeah. well, something, it's something we live with and something we're working on very good, very good. Oh, well, that your dirty postcard took us somewhere different, which is great. Um, thank you both for sharing these postcards with us, uh, with me, with each other, with, um, with, with, with the listeners. Um, I, I've said it before, I never know where the cards will send us. Um, I'm, I'm delighted you shared them with us. Another quick reminder, everyone at home, images of these cards, even the dirty postcard, uh, is all going to be on the blog, postcardfromthepast.co.uk. And before we let Tim and Bella off the line, I've got one more postcard for you both. It's customary for us to end the show with one of these. Um, so you can see the last card on your dope sheet that I've distributed. Yes. Um, you should be able to see a, a street scene um, with, with a, a, a car and a bicycle and a, a few pedestrians. Um, and you can probably see in the middle a, uh, um, a white dot. Can you, can you see that? Yes. 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 Well, this is, as, as you probably know, this is a postcard record. It's oh, a record. flexi disc. Well, not quite not a so flexi, flexi disc. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Semi flexi disc. Um, it's a Colorvox 45 RPM. And this is made in um, Hungary. And this particular one, the, the view is of a place called Zalegesheg. I don't know. Tim, you may have been to Hungary. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, well. Well, I. You can well, probably I'm get a very good goulash there. Yes. yes. Um, it, it's, a, it's a town on the Zala River. Um, that's west-southwest of Budapest. That's what uh, Wikipedia tells me. Um, now, young Tom, um, back at Wardour Studios, has made a digital 
file of this record. Wow. Yes. Oh, so that's superb. If we ask him nicely, we should be able to hear what it's meant to sound like. God, that's good. It's not bad, is it? The crackle's part of the charm. <laughs> we put that on afterwards. <laughs> oh. I think this might be a singer called Sibyl Yevela. She's got a good voice. Yeah. What's she just? That's lovely. I mean, I, I, I make the same observation every time. This is not bad for a piece of cardboard. So much data. So much data. Yeah, yeah. This one, I think, if it was sent at all, went in an envelope. Um, I'd hope but so. It does have room for a stamp and an address, and sometimes they are. I've had them sent by and, and they're still okay. The quality, amazingly. Oh, I want because... them with a voice on, recorded like 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 Pinky and Brighton Rock. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? You think I love you? Or something? <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. And you bring us back to Brighton. Marvelous. <laughs> Very good. Well, as the streets of Zalegasheg continue to rotate at exactly 45 revolutions per minute, that's it for this time on Podcast from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their past, Annabella Pollen and Tim Hayward. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book Postcard from the Past by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.